Today's scripture is from Luke 23, 33 to 38. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one, of, one on his right and the other on his left, and they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine, vinegar, and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him, which read, This is the King of the Jews. It is that season of contemplation. We're looking at the last words of Christ over the next few weeks. And when we say words, we're not literally counting the words. We're speaking to the last sentiments or phrases There is tradition surrounding this, of course, taken from the Gospels. The Gospels each have their own particular way of telling the crucifixion and resurrection stories, if it's contained at all. And the Gospels each have their own unique phrases or words that are pulled from that scene. But when we put them together, a compelling picture comes into focus. And there are messages present for us today in this Christ who suffers, in this Christ who dies, and in this Christ who speaks grace. Now, as Ralph was reading, I asked him to skip 34A because it was last week's text. As he's being crucified between two thieves... Jesus speaks these words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We were reminded not only of the psychological soundness of the concept of forgiveness, but of the incredible grace and love of Christ, who at this moment of tremendous injustice and impending suffering is able to forgive. We can extrapolate out very quickly, can't we? Uh, Is he forgiving the centurions who are there? Perhaps the soldiers who are driving in the nails. Maybe he is forgiving those who put him through kangaroo court in the course of the night. This semblance of justice which amounted to nothing, for he was an innocent man. Maybe he is speaking words of forgiveness to a misguided and angry crowd who would have rather seen a true criminal like Barabbas freed than to see Jesus heal and walk and speak and teach his message of love. Maybe when he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, he's speaking to the whole race of humankind. 
For we often act, don't we, in inconsideration. We act in blindness and stupidity. We act in hurtful ways, in vengeful ways. We create problem. Whoever Jesus is forgiving in this moment specifically, he is speaking a word in the context of unimagined injustice. Yes, he's admitted to being king of the Jews, but he's far more than that. He's Lord of all. And he is king of the Jews in the sense that he is of the line of David, the priestly, kingly line. And yes, he has said things that are blasphemous if he weren't who he were. Take this temple and in three days I'll destroy it and rebuild it again. What lunacy. It had taken hundreds of years and the second temple wasn't fully completed. It would take Herod and his ambitious building programs to come in and finish the second temple. And it would have been done, or very nearly so, in Jesus' time. We can go through the transcript of Jesus before Pilate and remember that even Pilate says... I don't know what to say about this guy. I find no fault in him. And yet he is condemned. And this gross miscarriage of of injustice is moving forward. And it isn't like he's losing a year or two or 10 or 20 of his life in a jail cell somewhere with yard privileges and a TV. He's losing his life. And it isn't like it's on a nice table with sterile needles and a few injected compounds. It's nailed to a tree, tortured to death. Naked as a jaybird before all humanity, passing in and out of the gate. It is an utterly horrific thing. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And so as we read on from verse 38 in chapter 23 there, we get to today's word. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him and said, aren't you the Christ? Now, just so that we are remembering, I know you know this, but we're going to pull it together. When the Greek says Christos, aren't you the Christos, the Christ, which is what the English translation would be, we need to move it back to the Hebrew. Aren't you Mashiach? Aren't you the Messiah? Aren't you the one who has come to save us? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly. For we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. 
Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, as my notes, which you may or may not have read, indicate, uh, this passage has been an interesting one for Adventists for many years. If you render it, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise, then the implication is fairly clear, isn't it? Upon death, it is expected, or Jesus is thinking or planning, that there will be a return to what we would call heaven. Now I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. If we render it on the other hand, I tell you the truth today, or today I tell you the truth, you will be with me in paradise, then we don't have a time frame on that. And there is only an eschatological expectation, that is to say, something happening in the future. Well, given our view of the state of the dead and what we believe Jesus taught, and that is that when you're dead, you're dead. The dead know not anything. Uh, he's not dead, he's sleeping, and so forth and so on. When you put together the, the Jewish expectation that resurrection would be a bodily event and that that's a necessary part of moving to the next life, it makes just as much sense to render this passage the way Adventists would. I tell you the truth today, or today I tell you the truth, you will be with me in paradise. The Greek doesn't have the comma. It's only a matter of interpreting the tenses and the forms. So that little bit aside, and the way we've wrestled with that text over time, and I think admirably, to make sure that our theology is correct, the message there is something far more shocking than what it may tell us about the timing of our entrance into paradise. Paradise is actually a word that comes from the Arabic or Aramaic forms. And it's the equivalent to a Hebrew notion of Eden, basically. The concept being that man was perfectly formed in the garden, rebelled against God, was driven from the garden, was kept from the tree of life, which was the source of immortality, and the waters of the tree of life, by an angel, a seraphim with a flaming sword, not permitted back to the tree. That the garden is taken or lost. Paradise lost, our fall from grace, Milton. And so you have this notion of not a notion, it's, it's our, our biblical story. We're created in the image of God, made perfect, placed in this garden to tend it. It's to be our home. And in fear and doubt and in betrayal of what God asks, we sin and become aware of a new reality, a reality that can't be sustained in immortality. A reality that drives us to sin and separation from God and removal from the garden. When Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise, he means that there's a return to this Edenic place. There's a renewed access to the waters and the tree of life. He's talking about an eternal reward. 
which raises for us a tremendous conundrum, doesn't it? If one as unworthy as a thief on a cross can simply say, remember me and find paradise, why do we need to be concerned about morality? Why do we need to be concerned about righteousness? Why do we need to be concerned about living life according to any kind of rule or theme? Does that question come up for you? What this text does is upset the expectation of religious people, myself included. What the text says is that this little act of chiding the fellow thief, saying, hey, look, don't you fear the judgment of God? Don't you believe that in the end you'll stand before him? Don't you get it that we've been created and placed here and that there's accountability? Now, I know not all of that is in the text. But he says, don't you fear God? Now, what do we know about Scripture? It says the fear of God is the beginning of what? Wisdom. Wisdom. Are we talking about being sore afraid as the shepherds were when the angels showed up? Is that the kind of fear we're talking about? No. Some translations render it the respect of God or the, an, an, an intimate knowledge is the beginning of wisdom, if you will. In other words, it's this understanding of God as creator and redeemer and restorer. It's the beginning of being wise. And I'll tell you why in a nutshell. The minute we understand that the law of God is good, as David did, not in the sense that Paul uses it to condemn us, although it's good for those purposes too, but in the sense that it's righteousness, the minute we understand, we get a glimpse into what God wanted for us, who he created us to be. And in that sense, we have a heightened sense of our value and identity. Now, most of us don't get that because we're still stuck in a parental model where our parents are telling us, good boy, bad boy, good girl, bad girl, you did the right thing, you did the wrong thing. And law appears to us in that kind of way. But when David celebrates the law, it's not so that he can get spanked. David celebrates the law because it is a revelation of the goodness of God and it declares to him who he was created to be as a human being. That is very, very important. And when we look at the thief of the cross, what he is acknowledging in this brief moment is that he has not lived along with his fellow criminal in the way he was created to be. He has betrayed who God created him to be and who God called him to be. Has Jesus done this? There is no guilt in him. 
this is a little aside, but it's worth your contemplation, and you can disagree with me any day and all day if you'd like to on this point. It is that fundamental betrayal that is the key issue. What we tend to do when we think about sin is be forensic. We tend to sell it short. We tend to think of sin as this particular act or this particular thought or this particular word or this particular thing. We don't tend to think of sin in systemic terms. In ontological terms, that's a huge word. And ontos means being or in state of being, study of how we are terms. Sin is how we are. It's rebellion against the living God who made us, created us, and loved us. That's what we entered into with Adam. If you have any doubts about that, review your own life quickly. What Jesus did was came to abolish that and be done with that so that we are no longer in a place of enmity with God, but we have been reconciled to God in Jesus Christ. What Jesus did was bridge that gap so that we no longer have to be afraid of judgment, but we can stand in his grace. That's what's happening in the larger picture. Did that make any sense to you or have I just lost you with big words and concepts? In other words, when we were children, sin looked like a particular thing. I remember my mother telling me not to put my hand anywhere near the stove because it was hot. Any of you have this experience? Well, then you're as stubborn as I am. What did my mother know? And what was hot anyway? So I put my little hand up on that burner. It didn't look hot. It wasn't red anymore. And the flesh fried. Any of you have that experience? Screams of pain. Wailing and sobbing and weeping for who knows how long after. But I learned what hot was. And despite my youth, I've never forgotten that lesson. It is seared into my consciousness. Now, we can talk about sin in those kinds of terms. I disobeyed my mother. I put my hand on the stove. I bore in my body the consequence of my sin. That is to say, I was burned. I had pain and physical reminders for a period of time thereafter. We can think of sin in those terms. But what I'm trying to to, to highlight just briefly is that sin is bigger than that. Sin is that piece in us which wants to say, what do you know about hot? Sin is that piece that says, why should I trust you? Am Am I... Making any sense? So this, in this moment on the cross, the thief standing there or hung on the cross next to Jesus says, don't you fear God? And he turns to Jesus, having understood his innocence, having just the vaguest thought of who he, that he might be who he claimed to be. 
And he says, remember me in your coming kingdom. Now, it's interesting that he chooses those words because what is written above Jesus' head is written in Latin, in Aramaic, and in Greek. And it says, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And by the way, Caiaphas and all of his lot were incredibly annoyed that that had been put there and asked that it be removed. And the Romans were not sympathetic. Hey, we've done what you asked us to do. Buzz off, they said. It stays. We like it. It has a certain poetry, doesn't it? I kind of like that about the Roman interaction with the high priests in this particular case. Very small satisfaction in a very tragic moment, I must say. Remember me when you come in your kingdom. I don't hear a confession. I don't hear the four steps of receiving the gospel. I don't hear an acknowledgement of specific sins. I don't hear a desire to join a particular sect or group or religious organization. I don't hear much of anything there except the desperate cry of a sinner. And what challenges us in this text is that our whole lives, the thrust of our religious experiences have been driving us to the very things we don't hear. And I'm going to suggest to you today that it isn't because both aren't necessary. I'm going to suggest to you today that we're on the right path. That if we read our scriptures, it says to them that believe. Doesn't it? If we read our scriptures, it says if we confess, he is faithful and just, doesn't it? It says that if we say we love God but hate our brother, we're deceived. Because how can we love God whom we have not seen and hate our brother whom we have seen? Does it not? Passage after passage after passage, and one we'll get to next week, Jesus addresses a commandment issue. Passage after passage tells us that faith Confession, belief, action, morality, justice, truth, all of these things are worthwhile pursuits. Paul talks about the grace of God in terms of forgiveness, and he says, if grace abounds, should I sin more so that grace can abound all the more? Let me pile up the debt so that the grace can be even bigger. That's what the Nicolaitans were doing. And then he says, depending on the translation, heaven forbid, God forbid, let it not be. It's a phrase, that, an idiomatic <laughs> phrase that we would translate any of those ways. In other words, no. No, no, no. We don't multiply sin so that grace can abound all the more. 
But thanks be to God who gives us grace. Jesus is suffering, and as you see in my notes, I know what I would have said. Are you kidding me? Are you, are you talking to me, fool? What, do you see what I am going through right now? I'm busy and I am dying. Harsh, I know. I'm not as good as Jesus if you hadn't figured that out. Jesus doesn't say any of those things. He says, I tell you the truth. I tell you what, today, you're going to be with me in paradise. You're in. I forget who the writer is or who the person is, but they're just a, a couple of prayers. My wife will probably remember. Anne Lamott? Yeah, I thought so. She says, there are two prayers. Thank you, Jesus, and Lord, help me. That's it. And if we read this passage, she has a point, doesn't she? All of the flowery words, all of the big things we could say, all of the ways we could go to confess, all of those things are summarized in two phrases. Lord, I am thankful to you for everything that you are to me, for every grace that comes into my life. Lord, I'm thankful for all of your provisions and your goodnesses. Lord, I'm thankful for my connection to love and goodness in this world. All of these things are part of my heart for you. And then we all have the other prayer, whether it's a sick or dying loved one, or a time crunch, and we just can't find that thing we need at the grocery store before our next appointment. I know that sounds trivial, but I know people who pray about those kinds of things. To really dire circumstances, like the car accidents I saw today, that quick, almost instant prayer, Lord, help me, covers so much, doesn't it? It really covers so much. And our thief prays this prayer. Remember me. It's spoken to a living God. And it doesn't fall on deaf ears. It's an effective prayer. It's a saving prayer. And this God who suffers in unimaginable agony. This God whose goodness is beyond our description. This God whose patience we can't describe. This God whose willingness to forgive even those who drive the nails into his wrists so painfully and unjustly. The same who have gambled for his garments and torn out his beard and spit in his face. This wreck of a human being on the cross is approached in a moment of hope 
just the smallest, littlest, tiniest fragment of faith, remember me. And Jesus gives him everything. And he does no different for you and no different for me. He gives us everything. In the moment of a pathetic cry. What a God. And so, Lord, our prayer is simple. Remember us when you come into your kingdom. This is our prayer. Amen.